0: Leviticus 26 is our text tonight. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for a chance to be in your Word today in the middle of this week. It's a busy week. Probably each one in this room could share a difficulty, a challenge they're going through, somewhere where they're trying to learn to trust the Lord greater in. And yet what better place to be as we go through these challenges than to put ourselves under the Word of God, to sing praises together with the flock of God. Lord, we thank you that you allow us to assemble and you encourage us. May we not take this lightly, Lord. May we be those who fall under the blessings of our Lord. Lord, keep us from those cursings. Let us walk with you where you have a free and open path to guide us and bless us and care for us as we follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. In Matthew 6, Jesus' great sermon on the mount He challenges his followers there on the seashore of Galilee that they should not be like the pagans, the Gentiles, who eagerly seek all the things of the world. What a a good challenge. It's it's so easy to get caught up in the things of the world and start chasing things that maybe aren't so bad or maybe on some top ten list somehow, but pretty soon you can be very consumed with the things of the world. And Jesus says... Don't, don't eagerly seek those things. The Heavenly Father knows what you need, he says. But then he gives this great instruction. You know the verse, verse six, uh, chapter 6, verse 33. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. I was thinking about that verse this morning as uh, those that were there, mostly a Jewish audience probably, in front of Christ at that time. They had been waiting For the Messiah, and they're trying to figure out if Jesus is that Messiah, and is he going to bring that kingdom right then? And he challenges them not to seek the desires of the pagans because the curses of God would fall upon you. And they knew this passage, particularly here in Leviticus chapter 26. But he says, Look, seek God's way, seek God's kingdom, his righteousness, his kingdom, and receive this eternal flow of blessing. Now, Of course, the prosperity gospel has made a mess of this whole thing. Uh, uh, but, But God's blessing is something we seek, right? It may, certainly, most of us, it's not financial. But it's the joy of the Lord. And you know He's blessed you and with you, and you have joy in Him. And so, here the Lord is already, in Matthew, trying to help them to seek after His kingdom and His righteousness. Well, the setting in Leviticus 26 still is at the foot of Mount Sinai. You have to remember that. We start studying this and it feels like things are happening already, but they're not. They have not even left Mount Sinai. They're going to go up to the edge of the promised land and blow it. But here these commands are given. And so so many years before the blessings and cursings of this chapter are fulfilled, God is graciously telling them, here's what will happen. I've learned through this study and more than ever in all the years of ministry that the law is full of grace. And and think about this. God gave them this incredible sacrificial system so they could be reconciled to God regularly. I think sometimes we think about the law and we think about Old Testament. You do this, I'll give you this. If you don't do this, you're going to get cursed. And we'll see some of that today. But inside of that, he set a beautiful sacrificial system that would temporarily withhold his wrath and keep him among them. The law is full of grace and mercy here. And all of us know, we understand the grace of God, but we also understand what happens when you reject truth, God's truth, and you decide to follow sin, what happens? But then we have his God that Paul says is so faithful that he cannot deny himself when it comes to us. So what an amazing truth. You start to think about this great text, the blessings and cursings of Israel that we're about to go into. Well, I broke it down into several sections um, to help us understand this chapter. It's a long chapter, so we'll scoot through it. Um, but the first one is the worship of God alone in the rejection of idolatry, verses 1 and 2. We'll read these verses, follow along with me. You shall not make for yourself idols, nor shall you set up for yourself an image or a sacred pillar, nor shall you place a figure stone in your land to bow down to it, for I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my salvation, revere my sanctuary. I am the Lord. Isn't it remarkable how many times God speaks against idolatry? I mean, if you go and just list all the verses of how many times God speaks against idolatry, maybe we ought to learn that it's a problem with humans. We are prone to idolatry. We're prone to gravitate towards something. And and here in Leviticus 26, it's an amazing chapter of of promises and blessings of an obedient nation, but it's also a reminder of curses if if they're a disobedient nation. But before these blessings and cursings are ever proclaimed, God is reminding Israel of a foundational truth. Do not put gods before me. What a foundational truth for our lives as well. He's telling them, if you put something before me as Yahweh, the Lord, the covenant God of Israel, you will instantly know I do not share my glory with another. Isaiah 42, 8. In the midst of a nation coming apart, God through Isaiah says this, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. See, these verses here in this opening statement is probably one of the most comprehensive statements of God's view of idolatry. In fact, he he uses all four forms that we see throughout the scriptures of idols. First, he calls the word idol, calls that out, images, sacred pillars, and figure stones. And you remember, he made very clear that the Hebrew root for for idol means worthless. So in their own language, the word meant worthless. (laughs) It's astounding that years later, they're cursed because they worship something Worthless. And yet that happens all the time, isn't it? We, we ourselves, or we're trying to help someone who worships something so worthless and they end up in such destruction. Drugs, alcohol, sex, well, all kinds of things. And their life is destroyed. If they, they pursue something worthless. And here the Lord is reminding his nation, don't pursue worthless things. The term image or carved image here would be something fashioned into some kind of object, an animal or a person or, or some weird thing, they came up. They were usually made of stone and clay and wood or some kind of metal. The sacred pillars were these large stones that they would set up. And you see those stones. Where's that place? Easter Island or something? They go, stone set up. That, that probably, that's probably not good. You know, the, they love to show that on Discovery Channel. Every time I watch it, I go, yeah, whatever they were doing there, it wasn't good. <laughs> And everybody's dead. They don't even know what happened to them if you study that. And, and a lot of it, as, you, as I've studied this, I began to realize a lot of the stones they set up had to do with, with fertility gods and so forth. Then the figure stones or stones that most likely they had engraven something to honor their pagan gods and... God has got after them about this. In Numbers, when we get into this book, Numbers chapter 33, 51 through 52 says this, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When you cross over to the Jordan of the land of Canaan, then you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you. Now listen to this. And you are to destroy all of their figure stones and destroy their molten images and demolish all of their high places. It seems to me... in all of Scripture, God speaks more about idolatry than any other sin there is. Because it's at the heart, isn't it? It's the heart of man's problem is idolatry. We create, we have a little idol factor, right there. We have a little idol factory just pumping them out. And so God knows that. I think in these two verses we see that God's reminding the nations that they are to set also a day aside for worship. You'll notice that connected to that. Notice he says, keep my Sabbath and revere my sanctuary. Well, this is really important. If you want to beat idols, but you are not tied and willing to give up to to know and love and worship your God, idols will take you over. They just will. And so I think it's an obvious connection here between the reverence of the tabernacle, the sanctuary, of the dwelling place of God, and the Sabbath. So if you don't shut down all your daily affairs and all the things that we have to do in this fallen world to make money, to live, to do all those things, if you will not shut that down every once in a while and spend, spend deep time with God, personal time with God, corporate time with God, idols are waiting for you. They're just there. And they're going to kick you all over the place. And that's what happens so often. We know. We know what happens. Their disobedience to God's commands comes back, and particularly the Sabbath. And remember, we looked at this last week, that God puts them into judgment for every year they did not keep those Sabbath festivals because it was important to them. They were chasing their idols. It was, just, God, how does this apply to us? This is Israel. And I, I'm going to be very clear tonight, Israel and church. I have to be. There's too many replacement theologies out there and all this kind of stuff that goes on that we're Israel. We are not Israel, and you're going to hear that a lot from me lately. Um, But there's a lot to learn. And I think as a New Testament reminds us not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together, that we are to continually offer up sacrifice of praise, Hebrews 13, Hebrews 10, and Hebrews 13, is one of the great protections that we have. Find someone who doesn't go to church much, and I'll tell you, I'll show you someone our idols are just about going to overtake them. Find someone who won't worship the Lord. Won't open their lips and praise Him in prayer and song and meditation. and The idols are coming to crush you. And so God has given us this, and I, I see the connection here. And what a wonderful reminder to keep us from letting our idols into our lives. I wrote my notes here, I said, Whenever worship becomes a secondary priority in our lives, it is a reminder that some idol in our heart has taken first place. Can I say that again? Whenever worship becomes a secondary priority in our lives, it is a reminder that some idol in our heart has taken first place. See, God wants us connected to Him Personally, those quiet times we have with Him, and corporately, it's a protection for us. We revere Him where He dwells, and He dwells with us. Second thought um, this evening is Israel's obedience would be reflected in their harvest and their victories on the battlefield. Now we begin to get into some of the blessings here. Um, Notice in verse 3, You can start to see how he starts this section off. If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments so as to carry them out, then I will give you rains in their seasons, so that the land will yield its produce and trees uh, of the field will bear their fruit. Um, So here right away we begin to see that the the one clear teaching of the Old Testament is God desires to reveal himself to the world um, and, and to the nation. One of the things that really... Uh, Israel really blew is God designed them to be his people in a proclamation of who he was to the world. And and one of the ways he did this was through blessing and victory. And when Israel's in its heyday, and it's obeying God, and it's it's keeping their Sabbaths and and revering the temple and keeping the law, they marched through land. And everybody knew the living God was powerful and he belonged to Israel and they feared the God of Israel. And there was no doubt that he was there. So God was going to reveal himself through and did through their obedience. But God also revealed himself through their disobedience. In fact, God brings curses on this nation in such a seer- severe way, but doesn't, doesn't eliminate the nation that there's no doubt it was God doing it. As we go on to study, you'll see that the nations said, wow, they have angered their God. They knew that they had a God of Israel, and God was determined to show that He was their God, and He wanted the nations to know who He was through the nation of Israel. But notice in verse 4 and 5 that... Only a true living God can control weather. He says, Look, I'm going to send rain in their seasons to you. You'll yield this great fruit. This is only, only the true and living God can do that. You can dance around a fire and put feathers in your head and do whatever you want, but you can't control the weather. And whoever you're dancing and doing to whatever to, he ain't listening because he ain't there. God controls the weather. And so if he wants you to be through a drought, he'll put through droughts. He does all these things, right? But he, do, but he also uses the weather to bring about blessing, and he uses it to bring about cursing. We've, we see that. Look in verse 6. Notice that there's this complete peace that they have. And, and the peace removes, notice in this verse, removes fear and trembling. What a blessing. He says, I'm going to give you Peace. If you obey me and follow me, I'm going to give you peace and you'll not be afraid. You'll never tremble. Can you imagine a whole nation not afraid at all? (laughs) No harmful beast, notice this. No war in your land, no sword it says there. Apparently there was quite the problem with lions eating people. (laughs) They have the same problem in California because they worship them instead of controlling them. Uh, Lion's eating people. Something's eating them. Some wild beast eats people. But here God makes a point of it. It, It's so interesting. I thought of all the things, God, that you show your blessing, and when this is interesting, the beasts aren't going to eat you. Look at 7 and 8. Here we have a promise of blessing that is just absolutely remarkable. Notice the the math here. Here there's this promise of that their enemies will be defeated in this spectacular way. And when you do the math, it's one person routing 20, and then the next ratio is one person routing 100. I mean, these are seasoned warriors they're going against. <laughs> Boo! <laughs> they just run off. And we actually see circumstances of that within the Old Testament. I mean, only the devastating fear of God could do that. And that's what he wanted. He wanted his nation to fear God in a reverential way, and he would bless them, protect them from those who were so pagan living around them. Or a third thought, we come to verses 9 through 13. But here God confirms his covenant of abundance and his presence in the freedom of Israel, verses 9 through 13. I want to read these verses. So I will turn towards you and make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will confirm my covenant with you. You will eat of old supply and clear out the old because of the new. Moreover, I will make my dwellings among you, and my soul you uh, you will not reject. And I will also walk among you and be your God, and you will be my people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt so that you will not be their slaves. And I broke the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. Well, here we find this common theme of fruitful and multiplying nation. A nation that is blessed by God is often very fruitful and multiplying. It's a growing, it's a strong, it's a healthy nation. And this is a promise for God if they will walk with him. The terms here are, are, are kind of amazing. I, 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 I've experienced some years where we had great, great abundance of hay and we were, still had hay from the last season. It was so great because hay is always, when you're in the high country, I mean, hay is like gold and when you run out, you're in trouble. I mean, there's nothing the cows to eat. So I remember some of those great years, but I also remember some of those very lean years and here the Bible saying, look, you're, here's how much I'm going to bless you. You're not even going to be able to finish last year's harvest before I give you this year's. Because I'm going to give you more than you need. And notice these great promises of, of all were, were that He would dwell with them. Look at that. He would dwell with them. He would tabernacle as the Word with them. And His soul would not be rejected by them. What a beautiful promise. And see, this made all the material blessings beautiful because God was there with them. When God walked with Israel, when they walked with with Israel, walked with God, there were real, true blessings that God gave them. Enemies ran away from them, gave them houses they did not build and orchards they did not plant. Probably the highlight, the highest time, even though a bit undeserving at times, but that's our God, is when you come to 1 Kings. There we find Solomon in chapter 10, and the queen of Sheba is coming to visit him. You know this passage, don't you? I don't have time to turn there, but you can read it later. The first 10, 11 verses there are, are phenomenal. And she's heard these things of how God has blessed the nation of Israel. And it's, it's thousands of stalls of horses and all kinds of things, from apes to grapes. I mean, I mean everything, she's overwhelmed with what God has done with this nation. God certainly blessed them. Look at verse 12 with me, I just want to point this out quickly, is that he says, I will also walk among you and be your God and you shall be my people. This verse Apostle Paul quotes in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, excuse me, chapter 6. It's interesting where he quotes it. He uses this verse to remind people that they are the temple of God. He wants to Corinth to realize that they should not defile themselves, but they are the very temple of God, and they are his dwelling place. And so in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16, he says, or what agreement does the temple of God have with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, and now he quotes it, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and they will be my, they, uh, I will be their God, and they will be my people. Now, Paul uses this in an amazing way, and I don't, don't, and I think most of us don't believe in replacement theology here, but he's reminding us that God doesn't change. He's immutable, and God does bless, and God does dwell among His people. I believe He's here tonight with us. He indwells each one of us. I've said many times, the most holy place in the world is where you sit, because if you're saved, the Spirit of God is there. And so we we have this truth here as Christians, New, New Testament, New Covenant Christians, That God dwells with us and we are his people. But verse 13 is an amazing verse too. Notice that we understand this final blessing as he speaks to freedom here. See, God's proclaiming the liberty of his people. And he's wooing them to walk with him. He uses such powerful terms. I brought you out. He's reminding them of what he has done. Remember, they're still at Sinai. Not too far in the distance is the Red Sea and a bunch of dead soldiers that were drowned. It's right there. They're still there. And he says, Look, did you remember? I brought you out. He uses the term slavery. This is your, your prior occupation. <laughs> you were a slave. I broke the bars. Notice that term. These are powerful terms. I made you walk erect. You were bent over with the weight and burdens of slavery, and I I made you stand up. I freed you from those things. The imagery is just astounding as as this incredible burden is lifted off them and reminder to them to walk in obedience with God. Number four, the holy God of Israel and his response to disobedience. Well, this section begins the promises of curses, and particularly if the nation disobeys. And what's interesting about this section is it's twice as long as the blessing section. Unfortunately, us humans need that. We need to be reminded of the consequences of sin and But here God says, look, nation of Israel, if you fail to obey me, if you fail to observe my commandments, if you despise my word, which are statutes and ordinances, you can see there in verses 14 through 17, and if you break my covenant with me, if you break your end of the covenant with Yahweh, I promise a strong and swift judgment that will fall upon you. We must remember that God's holy. I think one of the things when we study the Old Testament is we really are impacted by the character of holiness of God. And it's not that we don't see it in the the New Testament. Uh, It is just as clear and just as powerful because it's very personal there. But we do see this powerful testimony of His holiness, and it demands justice. But remember, as we said when we started, God's grace is always there. He's constantly giving them the opportunity to reconcile. And when Israel fell, it wasn't because God did not give them the opportunity to be forgiven and to be reconciled. They fell because they rejected God's clear path to that. In turn, the Bible says here in verse 16 that terror will suddenly fall on you. Consumption, fear, souls will pine away. And then the land itself will be cursed. There's no worse uh, worse phrase in this whole section than we find in verse 17. Notice when God says, I will set my face against you. I I, I pondered that for quite some time. I thought, Lord, what would that be like? Well, when we follow Israel out, you know what it's like. He sets his person and character and who he is against that nation. And it's astounding the things that happen to him. And when we go on to study the disobedience of the nation, we quickly discover that all of these curses come true. Every one of them come true. You can find passages to every one of these where we see these things come true. And say, well, again, Scott, this is Israel. What about some practical application? And we see this all the time. When people reject God's Word and His plan for our salvation, they find the judgment hand of God. There are many that were taught God's Word, and they've walked away from it. And you begin to see what happens to people. Two things that we see in this text is they're gripped with fear and anger. I meet with a lot of people who are mad at the church and haven't returned, and la-la-la-la. I mean, we, we see this all the time. And yeah, we're not perfect. we tell them we're, we're sorry if we failed in some way. We're, we're, we're doing our best to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and yet they're angry. And, and they're full of fear. And they have no resource now. Now they've rejected what God gave them. And certainly, yes, it wasn't a perfect situation. Maybe that, that person in ministry, that that wasn't nice or whatever it may be was wrong in that but now through that they reject God's principles and God's truth and now they have fear and they have no resource to deal with their anxiety there's no one to protect them from their enemies and they're angry and they set themselves against God's truth through their own will and desire and you see that in verse 17 that was happening to the nation it was going to happen to the nation Many come, become indifferent, and that's because their consciences get seared. You walk away from God and believe a lie, your conscience will be seared, and that's another judgment from God. So we, the church, should heed these warnings. Look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We'll get to this in time as we get closer to chapter 10 in our Sunday morning study. But I just want you to see the beginning of chapter 10 in 1 Corinthians. Because there is great application to studying the nation of Israel for the church. Comes back to idolatry, right? Chapter 10, verse 1, 1 Corinthians. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. All were baptized or identified into Moses as the mediator in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate of the spiritual food, this, this representation of, of the bread of life that would soon be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. They all drank of the spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which flowed from them, and the rock was Christ. It's all pointing forward, right? Nevertheless, with the most of them, God was not pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness, buried. Now they now these things, and look at this, happen as an example for us. Reason, I'll hold right there. The reason I read this passage is because some people will say, Scott, why are you teaching on the Old Testament? I, I I ran into someone not too long ago and say, our church never teaches that. We've never been in the Old Testament. We didn't even think it's for us. Oh, goodness. Well, I think I quoted this verse to him. It says, now these things happen as an example for us so that we would not crave evil things as they crave them. You can ask that person, well, do you ever crave something evil? Well, yeah, I guess I do. We ought to see. Let's we'll see what happened to Israel when you crave idolatry things. Verse 7, do not be an idolater, as some of them were. As is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Sabbath, reverence to God, Obedience to His law, gone. Even though God was gracious there, allowing them to come to Him at any time through that sacrificial system, through the priesthood, the intermediate, all of that was there. But they rejected it. Verse 8, Nor let us act immoral, immoral, immorally excuse me, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Now, nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents nor grumble as some of them did. Oh, he had to throw that one in. We were doing okay, weren't we? They were destroyed by the destroyer. Ooh. Now, these things happened to them as an example that they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the age have come. What an amazing statement. So as we go on to study these curses, remember these things are given for us to learn God is a holy God, and he is gracious and merciful, and he makes a way back to him. But we must make our way through his provisions. Number five, curses that only only the true and living God can dispense until the power of pride is broken. This is a fascinating section. Look at verses 18 through 20. If also after these things you do not obey me, then I will punish you seven times more for your sins. And I will break down your pride of power, and I will also make your sky like iron and your earth like bronze. Your strength will be spent useless, will be spent uselessly, for your land will not yield its produce, and the trees of the land will not yield their fruit. Well, this section of Scripture is arranged in such a way that gives the reader a sense of just uh, a multiplied, of curse upon curse as we go down through this. Verse 18, seven times more. Verse 19, we find the source of the problem. It's the power of pride and the pride of power. That's what causes man not to turn to God or to deal with idols within their life. They love the pride and power that they've gained. And often what they've gained is because of the blessing of God. Instead of worshiping God for all the blessing he bestows on them, their power became their source of pride. Boy, if you're not walking with God as an Israelite and you come in and you're one guy and a hundred people run from you, (laughs) you might go, "Woo, bad man here. (laughs) All kinds of problems come from that, right? Pride's at the root of this idolistic life that we can fall into. So as we read this, at the core of this chronic continual problem of disobedience is pride in one's own power or strength. And it's idolatry. Look at verse 20 with me. Notice it says that they, they'll be spent in vain or useless. Don't you hate it when you work so hard out something and nothing turns out? Man, I put so much effort in that. it just fell apart. That was their life. That's what happened to the nation of Israel. All of their efforts turned into just useless work. All their farming efforts produced little fruit. Look at verse 21 and 22. If then you act with hostility against me and are unwilling to obey me, I will increase the plague on you seven times according to your sins. Verse 22, I will let loose among you the beast of the field, which will bereave you of your children and destroy your cattle and reduce your number so that your roads lie deserted. You go, what does that all mean? Well, you can imagine when they heard the word plague. Whoa. We just saw that and it was really bad seven times remember they're doing great they're at the foot of mount sinai yeah we had a little golden calf problem <laughs> but we're still here we're gonna go in this promised land isn't god gracious to warn them of this i mean that that's an amazing term their plague i wonder what went through their minds Verse twenty-three, excuse me, twenty-two. The promise that God would send wild beasts among them to devour rebellious people—it And it would, it would be so difficult that it would cause their families and farms to operate in such a way that they wouldn't be able to travel. Notice the roads would be desolate. You say, well, where does this happen? Second Kings chapter seventeen. The Syrians have taken over the northern tribes of Israel. In verse 25, we pick it up there, and it says, In the beginning of their living there, they did not fear the Lord. Therefore the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. So they spoke to the king of Assyria, saying, The nations whom you have carried away into exile in the cities of Samaria do not know the customs of the God of their land. So he has sent lions among them. And behold, their lions, they killed them, because they do not know the customs of the God of their land. This is the king of Assyria talking. And, and if you follow the text, he says, well, find a priest among them, send them back so they can, they can learn their own God. Remember the boys that mocked, was it Elijah or Elisha? Some of you guys hair challenged might know this. Remember they came out and mocked him because he was bald and <laughs> a mama bear came out and he tore them all up? You know, that's pretty astounding that God can use wildlife to bring about judgment. These promises happened, didn't they? Follow, just follow down through 23 and 26 for the sake of time, reading these a long chapter, 46 verses. But here we can see that if it is God's goal to turn his people back to himself, and notice it's through humility and repentance. That's his goal. But if there's no repentance, there is more hostility to come. So his goal is to bring them to the repentance. But basically, it says they will be they'll be conquered and afflicted by pestilence and famine. This one, this phrase there, notice this where he talks about the ten women using one oven. Well, what does that mean? It means there's not enough resources, not enough flour, not enough wood. There's not enough to, for a woman to be able to cook a meal for her own husband. There's, there's ten trying to use one because that's all they got. And that's exactly what happens. Ezekiel chapter 4, 16 through 17. Moreover, he said to me, Ezekiel is prophesying as Jerusalem is being sieged. Son of man, behold, I'm going to break off the staff of the bread in Jerusalem, and they will eat bread by weight and with anxiety, and drink water by measure and in horror, because bread and water will be scarce, and they will be appalled with one another and waste away in their iniquity. That's exactly what happens to them. And remember, I want to keep saying this, none of this has happened yet. They're still at the base of Mount Sinai. This is the pure grace of God to warn them. Ah, they have a sacrificial system. They come to God through a mediator and be reconciled. Look at verses 27 through 35. This is a little longer section, but just kind of follow along as I drop down through it. Notice that their disobedience will bring de- Bring three, three, three things, basically, death, Desolation and exile and captivity is the idea there. Strong warning, seven times warning here, 27 and 28 there. Notice, 29, we find this sad truth come to a reality. Further you will eat the flesh of your sons and the flesh of your daughters you will eat. Second Kings, chapter six, 26 through 29. Again the nation is being besieged, and the king of Israel was passing by on the wall of on the wall, and a woman cried out to him, saying, Help me, Lord, O king. He said, If the Lord does not help you, from where shall I help you? They're being besieged, they're against the walls. This is it. It's Jerusalem's coming down and from the threshing floor, and from the winepress. And the king said to her, what is the matter with you? And she, she answered, and the woman said to me, give, this woman said to me, give me your son, that we may eat him today, and we will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and ate him. And I said to her the next day, give your son, that we may eat him, but she has hidden him from us. Oh my goodness, what, how low has it got? Can you imagine hearing these? You're at the Mount of Sinai, Mount Sinai you're at the foot, you've, he split seas, killed the armies, fed you with bread from heaven, water's flown out of a rock and you're hearing this, you're going, ah, that never happened. And yet years later, there's two women fighting over who gets to eat, whose child? Jewish historian Josephus said that cannibalistic sin broke out in the siege against Jerusalem in Jerusalem. In, uh, um, From the Romans in 70 AD, they did the same thing. So God knows the devastating power of sin. And I think one of the things I've learned from this is, wow, Lord, help us turn from sin. Let's not play with it. He gives such strong warnings to flee from it. New Testament, flee from those youthful lusts. Run from those things. Greed is idolatry. We hear that all the way through the New Testament. Remember, we said God wants himself known through the blessings of Israel or through the cursings of Israel. And he made himself known. Look at verse 33. There there's this promise that's scattered and dispersed to the Gentile nations, to their enemies, in Leviticus 25, we're told that God would empty out the land so it could enjoy the Sabbath because they didn't do it. So I started to write down a little comparison so far up to these verses, what I've seen. Verses 4, 5, and 10, the land will be fruitful. There's the blessing. If you follow me and, and revere me, I'll, I'll make your land fruitful. But it's unfruitful in 16, 9, 20, and 26. And then he goes, and you'll live in safety in verse 5. But in verse 33, you'll live in captivity. Killer beast among will be removed from you in verse 6, but killer beast will be unleashed in you in 22. Sword will be removed in verse 6, but sword will devour you in verse 25. Victory over your enemies in verse 7, defeated by enemies in 17 and 25. God's blessing in verse 9, God's discipline in verse 17, and just goes on and on. Look at the next section, 36 through 39. If there's no repentance, there's exile coming. And God's curses will be felt through fear, anxiety, and rotting away is the idea there. In verse 36, you see God brings a weakness to the heart. Hmm. I'm not even sure how to describe that. The language is a little bit difficult here. But it gives the idea that there is no desire, inner desire at all. You're just waiting to die. Terrible way to live on this earth. The whole context within these verses right here, there's paranoia will sit in. Notice the sound of a leaf will cause you to run. You don't want to walk with God? Guess what's going to happen? You're on your own. It's it's you're gonna be afraid of a leaf. You're gonna have fear and anxiety. It'll keep you on the run. And I think this happens today with even those who call themselves Christians at times. They're full of fear. They're full of anxiety. They've not trusted God. And so they find themselves fearful of things that aren't even there at times. And then he says death will come in a foreign place. You're going to die where you shouldn't have died. You should have lived a ripe old age in the promised land, but you're going to die in captivity. See, I think if there's any questions about how a holy God and a gracious God feels about sin, when you study this passage, you go, I know exactly how He feels about sin. He's a holy God, and yet He's extremely gracious. And this is why we fall on our knees and we are overwhelmed with the immensity of the cross of Christ. Christ that his great work on the cross would wash all the way back to those who believed by faith that God was who he said he was, was. And they would come to God God's way and wash all the way back to that person and wash all the way forward to the last believer on this earth and see the immensity and greatness to save a wretched sinner like me. That's why we study the Old Testament. Because we get a great appreciation of God and a good understanding of who we are. And it makes us worship, doesn't it? Last thought here. A repenting nation of Israel will find a restoring covenant-keeping God. I want to read these last section here, verse 40. If they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their forefathers, and in their unfaithfulness which they have committed against me... And also also in their acting, their acting with hostility against me, I also was acting in a hostility against them to bring them into the land of their enemies. And, or if their uncircumcised hearts become humbled so that they can make amends for their amenity, uh, excuse me, um, iniquities, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob, and I will remember my covenant with Isaac, and I will remember my covenant with Abraham as well, and I will remember the land." Well, this is an incredible display of God's mercy here, isn't it? And despite the possibility that Israel might be cursed because they're still at the foot of Sinai here, God is already promising to receive them, remember them, receive them, and bless a repentant nation. I think that's fascinating. And in these verses, you see the recognition of sin. If they see this, so there's this understanding that, well, Jesus forgave me. Well, forgave you from what? You know, we run out and say, oh, Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. What does that mean? <laughs> Why does he love you? How does he love you? What did he do to love you? And what did you do to need his love? we got to ask those questions, right? I saw a bumper sticker this week. I was driving behind it, and it said, um, Jesus loves us all, but he loves me more. I'm like, hmm, they might be right. Uh, and I, you know, I had to think about it for a little bit. It's a little arrogant bumper sticker, but... But notice there's this recognition of sin here, right? God has the right to discipline his people. He loves us to keep us from walking along with the pagans, right? Notice he uses the word uncircumcised hearts. You have cut away the dead stuff. See, this, this will take humility, right? They'll have to humble themselves and recognize their sin against God. Notice it's against me, against me, he says. In other words, they will recognize the grace of God... And that their punishment was deserved and God through his mercy and grace will restore and forgive them. That's what happens here. Look at verse 42. Then I will remember my covenant with Jacob and Isaac and Abraham and the land. So we have a clear promise that God will not break his covenant on his side to the nation of Israel. Again, this is Israel. Let's not mix this up. This is Israel. and Notice we quickly see the restoration and the blessing of a repentant nation, including its land. Here, I know a lot of people love Second Chronicles seven fourteen, where it says, "And my God, my, excuse me, my people who are called by my name, if they humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear. I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and heal their land." Well, as precious as that verse is, it's a verse foremost for the nation of Israel. We have to understand these things in context. And one of the problems in today's church is we have a replacement theology going on and we've we've rejected that God has still a plan for Israel and we would have to give up a a tremendous amount of promises. One person said there's a third of the Old Testament that we'd have to somehow spiritualize over. You know, as I know, our church, our elders are, are still believe that God has a plan for a remnant that he's going to bring back to himself. And while there is a certain human responsibility when we read this verse in the 1 and Second Chronicles, placed on the sinner, and particularly the nation of Israel, restoration is done in such a way to create conviction from the love of God. This is why we preach Christ. This is why we preach the doctrine of love, which I call the the doctrine of salvation. I call the doctrine of love. We preach that because it brings conviction. God uses that to instill faith, and so people understand that they are human failures and they are sin, and they need a God to rescue them through Jesus Christ. Well, why does he do all this? Well, because this is the character of God. He has an unbreakable covenant with the nation of Israel. He's, he, and I'm so thankful for this. The more I study this, the more I go, wow, God, I'm so glad you don't give up on us. Man, if this is down to whether we keep all this stuff, we're in a lot of trouble, aren't we? How'd you do this week? <laughs> you balance the old scales out. Man, we have a God who keeps his covenant, and our covenant is the new covenant which is in Jesus Christ. And, and so I'm so grateful the more I study this. I love this. Look at the last few verses here. They're just precious. 43 and following. For the land will be abandoned by them and will make up for its Sabbath while it is made desolate without them. Now, they, get, they get sent off to Babylon and Syria and Babylon and Persians and so forth, right? And they, meanwhile, will ma- be making amends for their iniquities because of they reject my ordinance and their soul abhors my statutes. Yet, in spite of this, I got this circled in my Bible. Yet, in spite of this, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not reject them. Nor will I so abhor them as to destroy them, breaking my covenant with them, for I am the Lord their God. Verse 45 But I will remember. Isn't that beautiful? But I will remember for them the covenant of their ancestors, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations. This is clearly about Egypt, isn't it? I mean, clearly about Israel bringing out of Egypt. It's not the church, right? This has got to be Egypt. That I might be their God, and I am the Lord. These are the statutes and ordinances and the laws which the Lord established between himself and the sons of Israel through Moses at Mount Sinai. What an important... Texas is, and though the land would lay empty while Israel was in exile, God would not forsake it. Not just the people, but the land itself. And to this day, God remains ready to restore a remnant. Now, get that clear. I know there's some out there on TV and several, God, every Israelite's going to go to heaven. And I don't think that I was the Bible of that. <laughs> Salvation still was by faith. And there was plenty who had no faith in God and died in their sins. There is a remnant coming, and to this day, God remains ready to restore this remnant of Israel back to himself in a glorious display of his grace and mercy. And despite their land being corrupted by those who hate him and them, the nation of Israel, God promises to destroy them and, and, and never break his covenant. Just for I am the Lord, their God. And notice in verse 45, it is God who remembers the covenant, and he's got the nation of Israel in view here. So God will once again use the nation of Israel to prove to the nations of the world that there is one true and living God. Listen to these verses in Zechariah chapter 12, 9-10. And in that day I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication so that they will look upon me whom they pierced. That has never happened yet. <laughs> so the church can't fulfill this. They can't spiritualize these things. This is a, some kind of remnant that God is going to save. And if you study all of Zechariah, two-thirds of them have already died by the time you get to this passage in rebellion to God. And he rescues this remnant. And then it says, they look on the one whom they pierced, and they will mourn for him as one who mourns for their own son. And they will weep bitterly over him like bitter weeping over a firstborn. This is literal interpretation of the scriptures. And and I get a little passionate about this because it it is the grace of God that we're speaking out here. I don't want to spiritualize the grace of God. It is the grace of God poured out on real human beings, a real nation, in fact, here. Now, 46. These blessings and cursings were established by God between him and the sons of Israel. God did all this. That's what 46 is telling us. He goes, Scott, how does this play out for us? Well, the wages of sin is death. Did you not see that in the passage? (laughs) Disobey me and die. It's just so clear, right? The wages of sin is death. In fact, Paul says in uh, Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law having been a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So clearly our sins have cursed us to death. That's the wages. Right? We're born cursed. We're born sinners. We're born in desperate need of someone to save us. And even before death comes, we suffer from the consequences of sin that acts like curses in our daily life. We use that word, right? People say, I'm cursed today, it seems like. Yeah, you are. You were born cursed. But there's a solution. (laughs) There's one who can take your curse. So when we receive this gift from God, this perfect atoning work of the Son, our curse is removed in Christ. We we don't even, we're not even looked at as cursed anymore. He chooses never to bring up, the Hebrew language is very clear, he chooses never to bring up our sins ever again. I mean, if you're not free from a curse, that that passage is just so crystal clear. He takes our sins away. And then the blessings of God flow through our relationship with Jesus Christ, and this is in prosperity gospel, and this is where they've got so lost. And this is where replacement theology often takes you. You end up in this prosperity gospel because you pl- try to apply all this stuff for Israel that God meant for Israel to today. And then they say, "Well, you're just cursed. You just don't have enough faith, or you have enough faith. That's why you have your jet." I think Corey Timboom was a tremendously blessed person, and she probably most of her life hadn't didn't have two nickels to run together, and they didn't praising God for fleas. And she would probably say, I'm the most blessed person on the earth. And I think many of you feel you're the most blessed people on the earth because you have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Your sins have been forgiven. And you're no longer under a curse. And God's rescued you, and now you belong to Him. And someday He will come, and you will inherit His physical kingdom. And we're certainly part of a spiritual kingdom right now, but God has a physical kingdom to come, and we're going to rule and reign with the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And it's real. And he'll make all these two groups one, and we'll be all God's people, and we'll spend eternity with him. All because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. But, brothers and sisters, sin is devastating. And I think most of us know that in here. Our own sin teaches that, and the sin of others teach that. So let's be, like Paul said to the Corinthians, let's let them be an example so we don't have to go through that. Amen? Lord Jesus, we thank you that you took our curse. We deserved all of the consequences that the curse could bring. Separation from God, fear and anxiety and depression and pestilence and all the things, no protection from a loving God. We deserve every bit of that, God. But though the wages of sin is death, oh, the verse doesn't end there. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You have a great gift. And that gift started with our forgiveness and the removal of a curse upon us. A fallen humanity that started with Adam and Eve and has been spurned down through the entire human race. And yet, there you are, God. Knowing your children from the beginning of the earth, in the foundations of the universe, giving them to your Son, and your Son promising never to lose none of them. And in the end, he gives us back to you as this love gift from the Son to the Father. All free of curse, free of sin, perfect in our righteousness of Jesus Christ. What a blessing. And we learn from the Old Testament, Lord, what you think about sin, who you are, a holy God, and how you are always gracious and you always have provided a way back to you. Lord, I pray today for many of us in this room that may have family members or loved ones, friends, who have heard the good news of Jesus Christ but have continued to reject it. Lord, we don't want them to feel the consequences and suffer through the things, but Lord, we know that you're perfect in all you do, but we beg you to save them. Our heart aches for those who don't know you. And particularly for those who have tasted the goodness of God. They've heard the gospel. They've had parents that preach the gospel. They've had friends that loved on them and shared truth with them, who prayed with them. But our heart aches. And so, Lord, we ask you to save them. Cause them to know you. Draw them to yourself, Lord. It is only something that you can do. It is a miraculous work of you, God. May they see, may you lift the veil off their eyes and they see the glorious person of Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that would take place soon. We promise, we promise, Lord, to give you all the praise and all the glory. May we shout hallelujah when we watch you work. Lord, help us trust you. Help us not to walk in things that you have rejected. May we walk in a way that's pleasing to you, not because we have to, but because we get to. So help us, Lord. Thank you for those who are here tonight. Lord, bless them as you do so regularly. In Jesus' name, amen.